I should say that um, the book is dedicated to Cora. So, so, well, so, uh, so <laughs> I'm on the spot here. Yeah, so, so, uh, yes. um, I'm a privileged reader. Uh, well, I'm starting out <coughs> actually with a quote uh, that just jumped out at me from the pages of the New Yorker on, uh, from a piece um, reviewing Grace Paley's collection uh, of occasional writings, uh, her, po her political writings and some interviews. Grace Paley, one, if you don't know her, one of the um, most important and most wonderful uh, 19th century, uh, 20th century sh uh, short story writer <coughs> and activist. And in the interview, it says that Grace Paley was often asked about the connection between her politics and her fiction. Sometimes she said that her subject matter turned out to be inherently political. People like Henry Miller <coughs> and Saul Bellow were not writing about the lives of people like Faith Darwin, her, her protagonist in many of the stories. Paley initially suspected that her work wouldn't, would be considered trivial, stupid, boring domestic, and not interesting, but she couldn't help it. Everyday life, kitchen life, children life had been handed to me. Another answer has to do with justice, the, qu the quality that Paley saw at the root of her literary and, and political endeavors. In a 1985 Fresh Air interview, she told Terry Gr Gross, when you write, you illuminate what's hidden, and that's a political act. The remarkable fact is that her fiction, People by the Politically Minded, doesn't do the things that politically infused writing typically does. It doesn't preach, it doesn't demonize or lionize, it doesn't nobly set out to illustrate a set of beliefs or ideals. Indeed, it often undercuts them with sly self-awareness. We hoped that we were not about to suffer socialist injustice because we loved socialism, one of Paley's narrators says on a trip to, Ch to China. Paley's unwavering trust in the power of the collective was essential for her activism, as her clear-eyed affection for the foibles and fallibility of the individual was essential for her art, and it's a delight to encounter both Paley's in a single volume. Now, w when I read that, I thought, uh, you know, this is, it, this is it, and this is Grace Paley, who I was privileged to know, absolutely in the spirit, talking about her own fiction of what, of what Isabel uh, is getting at in, the, in her book. Uh, in many ways. So I, want, I thought that that might be something to come back to. How do writers actually think about the way in which their domestic fiction about the small and the domestic is political uh, in our own time? So apologies to those of you who've heard this, other, this story I'm about to tell you before, um, especially Isabel, who I'm sure I've told it to. In the years when I was a lecturer at Sussex University, living in Brighton, I used to amuse myself with writing and rewriting a novel in my head, a piece of detective fiction. I was a fan of the genre, involving town and gown, institutional and national politics. The protagonist and amateur detective was a thinly veiled version of myself, but the heroine who helped me solve the crime was always an equally thinly disguised version of Isabel, who I, who I had first met as external examiner for English and of whom I was in awe for her intellectual brilliance, first of all, but not negligibly, her beauty and sartorial elegance, need I say more. <laughs> in those years, teaching the novel in the long 19th century, first the American novel, then the English, I used to suggest to my students that among other things, they might think of the novel as having engaged, as having or engaged in an argument, played through its various elements. 
this injunction to get them away from simply talking about character or conversely about style and aiming to get them to think of the novel more dialectically but also to emphasize that fiction like other contemporary discourses have a politics. This worked up to a point, although it frustrated me it could lead to some strikingly reductive readings. Uh, and for some novels, of course, much better than others. And it's not a strategy I kept to across the whole of my teaching career, but I recalled it and other aspects of my critical practice around the novel while reading novel politics. How much better it would have been, I've been reflecting ruefully, if I'd asked them, as Isabel does, in this wonderfully provocative, deeply thought, and boldly polemical book, to consider the novel as an inquiry in italics. A set of questions that may open up hidden truths to emphasize the ways in which the 19th century prize open secrets giving room and air for what she calls democratic imaginations. Even if too late for the critical well-being of my long lost students, many of whom of course are now professors of English elsewhere, <laughs> my real and imagined heroine had triumphantly come up with not a solution, the whole of novel politics warns against that rushed judgment, but a new approach and methodology with which to explore the conundrums and contradictions of the realist, always to be in quotes, novel, its power and singularity, a way of reading its democratic impulses of even the least overtly political novel, but also, I think, as I kept thinking as I was reading, perhaps also the most overtly political novels but she suggests novel, criti novel criticism and the politics of novel criticism has got stuck in a hard and unproductive place between assumptions that derive from Marxist and post-Marxist historicism and historical criticism. The bourgeois novel is a conservative form, certain kinds of class, gender, and post-colonial approaches that are demanding certain things of the novel, that it, that it, it align itself in particular ways with historical discourses or, uh, or be criticized for not doing so. Uh, and it's caught between that, she thinks, and a new hard formalism. The former perhaps asking too much of the novel, the Marxist and post-Marxist historical ones, and the latter too little in terms of the contribution to a progressive politics. And she argues forcefully that in any case, we might be looking in the wrong places. Detectives are awfully good at <laughs> Uh, it, at some point in every detective drama, they say, you know, we're not looking at the right thing. We're following the wrong thread here. Uh, and even the wrong issues for the novel's democratic intervention. Although that, with, and this, with apologies, is my crude interpretation and gloss uh, for the book's more nuanced running critique of contemporary criticism, as, was, as well as her generous use of it. If you want to really get with that critique, read Isabel's footnotes, which are helpfully <laughs> on the page, and you can track them through the book. Critically, she argues for the embeddedness of historical and political insight in the 19th century novel, embedded in narrative and form, uh, the poetics of form, but also, her example in the opening pages is Wuthering Heights, indirectly so, so that its implications and indirectness require teasing out. <coughs> She is speaking, I think, both for the novel and for her hopes for criticism. Uh, criticism when she writes that the democratic imagination comes into being through praxis. It's a critical project, as, as it does not pursue a finite agenda or preordained plan, yet it's sustained by a purposive imagining of the constructed <coughs> fragility of social forms and how they could be otherwise. Uh, 
there's a utopian, democratic and possibly even utopian element is what you say is there uh, in the democratic imagination. We must not begin by assuming the novel's conservatism as a given or a ground and, and focus on how, to, how it may help us to think otherwise. She says, indeed, once we assent to genealogy as critique rather than consolidation, the legitimacy of the nation state itself comes under question. And here she's arguing for the novel's specificity, but also for its possibilities. Now, novel politics is peopled by a broad and eclectic range of philosophers and thinkers, some from the long 19th century, Hegel to Tocqueville, Darwin, for example, and some from the 20th, Agamben, Arendt, Brooks, just to name them just to start from the beginning of the alphabet. The book prize open the places in their work that speak to and help to define the open forms of inquiry that it proposes, but, it also, in, but also she indicates some of the limits of their work uh, and, and, the, work, and the, the, the philosophy and the, and the criticism's own, own contradictions. It shows persuasively and eloquently how different realisms require interrogation and get it in the very place it seems to be most constricted. And she's also, and also how the mixed generic forms of the 19th century novel, its discontinuous and fitful mimetic process uh, that exposed the realist mode as a mode. I'm quoting a lot from Isabel because her way of putting these things is so much more precise than any paraphrase I could possibly develop. As Isabel, I'm almost there. As Isabel rightly says, the novel experiments ceaselessly with modes and idioms of narrative. And it's particularly when the real is broken into a question that experiment occurs. And this made me think uh, uh, that, that also when different registers of realisms collide, uh, is that an open moment, or when a non-realistic moment Jane Eyre's, for example, flights of imagination, which soar above the limits of her vision when she's at the top of Thornfield, collide with the, with the real unidentified laugh that we later know is, is, is the mad Bertha Mason as a real that is already Gothicized, already lifted out of the real. Uh, so it's also when the different modes within these mixed form mid 19th century novels uh, sort of clash and there's a kind of abrasive moment uh, where where the whole, the, the fiction of realism is that, and, and mimesis is opened up. I love the four strategies. Do I have got another two minutes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love the four strategies for reading. I may not adopt all of them, but even when I resist them, they give me pause uh, and they make me interrogate my own strategies. The injunction to remember that the novel pursues its study of exclusion through the poetics of form, which is unsettled by the dem democratic imagination. Uh, to be alert to the politics of generic disruption and experiment, um, though I might not always see it as an indication of the presence of a democratic imaginary, and to be alert also to the presence of art and aesthetic work uh, in novels. Uh, I thought that's, there's a marvelous section on that in the, in the book, uh, to see how creati creativity functions uh, 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 to open up a democratic imagination and to the way space is used, especially in narratives of dispossession. Um, where I think I would want need to have a longer argument is in the questions about history and how it enters and stays outside, but that's for a later moment. Uh, 
I'm thinking of the present moment now as I conclude, so uncertain, so immediately and concretely frightening, so precarious, and about the conjunctural nature of critical work past and present. My sense is that in hopeful times, and the 60s, 70s, and 80s, looking back, when much of the critical approach to the novel that this book is critiquing and challenging um, for its reading of the 19th century novel as conservatives was framed, was a more hopeful time politically in spite of Thatcher and of Reagan than today. We felt that the novel then, with, with its solid bourgeois origins and limited liberalism, could stand a tough bashing. While today, we are looking to it and to other forms of creative, passionate thinking, that's Isabel's phrase, and democratic interchanges to provide us with some sense that the democratic project to court is not dead. That is not a criticism. It's just where we, where we are. And it's always good, either in looking at novels or life, to try to see where one is speaking and thinking from. In this case, today, here, on a small island in shifting sands. 